My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back. It's good to have you here with us once again. Our guest this week on the show is Al Riggs. They're an incredibly prolific singer-songwriter from Durham, and their new album is called I Got a Big Electric Fan to Keep Me Cool While I Sleep. Though they like to bounce around genre-wise, this one is rooted in country rock traditions. It was recorded in quarantine and features contributions from cosmic pedal steel guitarist Chuck Johnson, as well as James Wilson of the Paisley Fields and Patrick Haggerty of Lavender Country, among others. It was inspired by artists like John Prine and traditional music, and it's dedicated to, let's quote Al here, the queers who strive for their own version of home. Al joined me to discuss the new record and their work, and it was a really fun talk. We, of course, have to touch on some Twin Peaks stuff. Before we get into it, though, Transmissions is brought to you by our patrons. Head over and check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. You can find me on social media. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of the show. I always love hearing from you valued listeners. You can find my contact info at Aquarium Drunkard as well, along with all of our great writing, mixtapes, interviews, features, and more. If you dig the podcast, remember you can leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, or just share the show send you a link to your favorite episodes with your pals, that sort of thing. Okay, here's my talk with Al. We'll speak more on the other side. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. Hey Al, it's so great to have you here on Transmissions. Uh, we've been talking about doing this forever, so I'm glad it's happening now. Yeah, same here. Uh, I don't know how we uh, in- initially uh, found each other on Twitter. I guess through like mutual music friends or whatever. But I just started goofing on people's tweets, and I think that's how we initially met. Do Do you remember if you goofed on on one of my tweets or Pro- probably <laughs> I I cast a wide goof net. Go- goofnet uh yeah. <laughs> but yeah no so one of the things that we were sort of when we when we were going back and forth uh uh i think we we talked a little bit about twin peaks and 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 before we get into your great new record um which i'm really excited to discuss you you slandered albert from from twin peaks on <laughs> on twitter um and I, and i figured that that would be that's where we have to start so just so I have a better understanding, what do you dislike about Albert specifically? There is, I need to remind myself of Albert. Albert is the one who, he's the second uh, FBI agent that comes in. That That's like right. want, he's, that, that wants to do the autopsy. Right, so he's he's part of the Blue Rose, Blue Rose task team with like, uh, with Gordon Cole right, and... Right. Um, David Bowie's character and uh, Kyle MacLachlan eventually. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, yeah. 
Um, I think what I don't like about Albert is how he doesn't seem to, and maybe this is kind of the point of the character, he doesn't seem to gel with the rest of the cast, and it, there's some points where it just seems like David Lynch kind of poking fun at the idea of someone not fitting in, or not, uh, not gelling with the rest of the town, like someone trying to be cartoonishly or comically antagonistic. Um, sure, sure. Uh, I like that he... I like, like a lot of people on the show, that he's good at his job. Uh, but... I... I don't know. Albert just rubs me the rubs me the wrong way. I'd probably punch him in the face, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... Yeah, he's... The thing I like about the character, right? So what I what I I like that he's clearly also, a person. I love that you you've been saving this. For I the, did for, I, for I, the for the podcast, and I completely forgot about it. I wrote my thoughts down. I was like, "Here's I'm gonna we're we're gonna get this sorted out." No, I didn't really. I didn't really write my thoughts down, but I did. But I have been thinking about it. And what I like about Albert is that he he seems like the kind of dude who would prefer to be left alone entirely he doesn't want to have anything to do with any of this but because he knows what he knows and because of the things he believes he's basically just like he's compelled to do the right thing even though it's the last thing he would enjoy doing right and i and i i i like i like when 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 there's a character like that especially in a world especially in a show like like twin peaks but but that is actually that's a great introduction to you. You like to give spicy takes and all sorts of stuff like that. God, on I really, I. God, you bringing that up, it is. It is going to be my be my biggest regret in life if that's all I'm remembered for. I spent, oh, I spend, yeah, and I spend, I spend years working on music. And trying to get better at writing and producing and self-recording. And if I just poop out some dumb joke and it gets likes, I'm like, well, what the hell? What the hell am I even do- doing with all of this? Do do you do you enjoy social media? Do you enjoy like the general? No, sort of nobody enjoys nobody enjoys social media at all. <laughs> uh, but I like the connection. I like the way that it helps people like me who are usually kind of terrified of meeting new people. It kind of cuts out a lot of the bullshit and a lot of the pretense of the hi, how are you sort of thing. Uh, At the same time, though, it is very easy for some people to fall into uh, creating a character for themselves, whether or not they know they are. Uh, It's very easy for people to fall on that and kind of have to stick with that even when things change if that makes any sense like there are some people online some podcasters that i won't name but are just like really fucking irritating and annoying and i think the reason that they're annoying is their entire brand is being emotionally aloof and super ironic and detached and the funny thing about this, and this happened to me very recently on Twitter, the funny thing about this is when you call them detached, 
they will immediately say that they're not and just start ragging on you and bringing their followers into the into the mix and everything. Though I'm not detached. I'm a hundred percent sincere. And then they just like go back to like saying how like I don't know. I'm trying to make up like a super edgy ironic joke like uh kramer from seinfeld is responsible for uh apartheid or something like that <laughs> some some, bu- sure, some yeah. bullshit ultra edgy sixth grader crap that nobody with any n- nobody has time for other than to just right. look at it and point and laugh and move on it's nothing meaningful it's just it's just a goof, but I think the problem with goofs is that once you make your whole thing that, people are going to think that's all you are, and the worst yeah. problem is when you try to keep that up, you're, that is all you are. Right, right. It's the it's the boy who cried wolf. Do you view, do you sort of view your, your obviously you make, you've put out so many records, you're an extremely prolific, you know, on, on that front, There's there's always something coming out. Do you feel like, you know, uh, like to, to, to just play with the idea, your Twitter persona, is that just like, is that tied to, because I guess what I'm getting at is there's, there's a performative element of music. You know, when, when, when you're, when you're making things, there is a performative and there's a little bit of a, it's not necessarily a character, but you know, uh, you have to employ a persona yeah, to some degree. You know? There's who you are when you're on stage, and there's who you are when you're not. Uh, I think sure. a lot of that comes from the fact that I'm autistic, and a lot of that comes from... Uh, there's just I feel like there's just going to be a dog barking the entire time this interview, just in the background. Is there, <laughs> is there a dog barking on... On your end? Yeah, there's a dog barking on my street. I don't know. Let's just have let's just let the dog bark. Um The dog will bark. There's a there's a there's been a, a person riding a motorcycle back and hell forth yeah. in front of it's my house. Perfect. So I... it's just the best podcast atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I am autistic and the fact that when I'm creating art, there is a huge uh, when I'm creating art, Jesus Christ! When I'm <laughs> when I'm making music and when I'm performing, there is a huge output of emotion and a huge uh, exhumation of energy, and it's just an immediate retreat. Like on tour, that's how uh, a few years ago, that's how I was. I was loud and I was running around on stage and I was, you know, making jokes and I'm a goofster and this is this is my onstage persona and then immediately after i'm done i just want to throw all of the shit in the in the van and i just want to be left alone and i just want to like be on my phone or read or hang out in the green room because i'm fucking tired and i'm emotionally exhausted and i don't really want to deal with any of that right now um so yeah i think there is kind of a an aspect to There's kind of an aspect of being on social media that involves that performative nature because we've all been told that this is how we get people to pay attention to our art. The double-edged sword there is you don't you you absolutely cannot 100% guarantee who is going to pay attention to what you're doing and what they're going to pay attention to. So you either just 
ruin your entire life on Twitter or you just don't interact with it at all and whatever happens happens. You can't force anyone to do anything. Uh, sure. Despite what many people have told me. Uh, people have told me regarding uh, marketing and promotion. You cannot force anyone to uh, engage with your shit. Which is why when brands try to be on Twitter and make jokes, that's why people immediately recognize it as pandering and promotion. Like, oh, this is just like, oh, a meme is over because a brand automatically tweeted about it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, it, people can spot fakeness from a mile away. There's nothing about what you do that that feels fake, even like you know whether you're tweeting or 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 your record. Um, and your record is called "I Got a Big Electric Fan to Keep Me Cool While I Sleep." I'm I'm curious. You know, you put so much work out, and uh, your Bandcamp page. You know, there's there's a lot to take in there's a, and there's a, and there's a lot that isn't available to people anymore because uh i had a nervous breakdown one night and just decided there's so much on here people aren't going to pay attention to the new shit or people aren't even going to go back to this old shit so i'm just gonna get rid of 80 percent of it but now it's starting to get crowded again <laughs> well well I, I wonder how did the recording of this album uh, uh i mean Obviously, the pandemic is yeah. a part of it, but but um, were there approaches and and how did the recording of this album differ from from some of the other stuff that you've been a part of? Uh, I spent the first chunk of quarantine uh, spending a lot of unemployment money trying to upgrade my studio uh, and actually create a studio, uh, new microphone, mic stands monitors that I actually got from a friend of mine, a uh, new interface, a uh, bunch of MIDI stuff, and a drum kit, which I, which you can see, that I've never actually used uh, live drums of my own before. So uh, experimenting with that and creating new sounds with an improved studio lent itself to trying to get the sounds in my head out there a little bit easier than I would with garage band loops. Yeah. Well, it's such I mean it's 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 a great sounding record and it feels very it feels expansive and it feels like some some you're exploring some new territory. I mean there are some great guests on it, but just in terms of your voice sounds wonderful on this album. The Thank songs you. are, that, are that, really <laughs> I worry about that. I was very nervous about how my voice sounded on this record. Well, just because it was so upfront, what what was some of the source of some of that nervousness? I mean, I don't think it was warranted, but I also want to respect. Yeah, yeah, your, yeah. You no, know. no, that's that's that, no, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm non-binary, and I have a weird relationship with my uh, with everything having to do with gender with everything having to do with my voice. I have a naturally very deep voice and uh, fighting with that and also fighting with that emotionally and mentally while understanding that I'm also a songwriter all the time, it's I have a hard time understanding what my actual voice is when I'm singing. Uh, sometimes when I sing during the recording session, I think it's great, and then I play it back, and I just want to throw my microphone in the toilet. 
because I yeah I never like how my voice sounds, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, it's uh, it's it's nothing that anyone said. It's nothing that anyone has done. It's just how I'm. It's just how I'm built, and it's never going to go away. When you're when you know the thing that is so one of the 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 transcendent I'm also things. I'm also real really quick I'm also really trying not to turn this interview into therapy which I've kind of oh. made the mistake of making other interviews in the past kind of go oh, no, into no, therapy no, no, no. Well, I'm not. I certainly wouldn't be qualified to help first and foremost. So, so it would be. I'd be doing you a great disservice. But, um, um, but no. I, 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 one of the the things that the the thing that happens with music or can happen at least is you get completely out of your head, and you're not, and you're not in in the process. You know. Uh, it, it, it's less about thinking and it's more about just what's happening. And, and I wonder, does that, does that happen for you too? I mean, is that, you know, when, when you're in it, is there that analytical thing? Can you put that on pause and focus on just having it, you know, come that, out yeah, or, or wh- that, whatever? So I set out to make a country record and I think the record is definitely very country leaning, but the thing, the reason why I wanted to make a country record is because I've been so, obsessed in the past not to a copy myself and b copy other people and then i just had this little mini epiphany that's like well no one owns chord progressions not really no one owns the combination of these notes there are of course variations but there are only 12 notes there's only so much you can do before you just repeat C, A minor, F, G over and over again. And it's, it was freeing in a way because it allowed me to, for the first time, make an album that focused more on the performance than the writing. The writing came very naturally, but the performance didn't. A lot of songs were bounced, uh, uh, bounced over to my husband who has been really great during the pandemic uh just trying to get me to try not to strain myself better you know what i mean like my voice can kind of be pushed a little too hard and that kind of some notes are longer some notes are shorter i don't really know what i'm talking about there but like (laughs) <laughs> uh, but uh, it was more important to, for this thing to feel good rather than quote unquote sound good. So I wasn't concerned about things sounding too original, if that's if that makes any sense. Like country music is very, and this isn't an insult at all. The country music is very simple, and that's it's got very simple framing around it. And the beautiful thing about why there are so many different distinct voices in country is how they use those framings to create something personal um, inside. Right, you've got the you've got the framework, yeah. you know, which exists in a sort of um, 
in in the lineage of a tradition which isn't to say you can't make surprising choices oh, or no, that you don't all. you know you, you can make all sorts of choices but like what you're yeah was country was country something that you interacted with growing up no or, or uh, that you, you came later to it i came much later to country uh growing up uh Growing up, you know, 90s kids, remember? Uh, <laughs> uh, country on the radio was kind of going through a weird uh, renaissance uh, during the 90s. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This sort of weird, the creation of the monster that we have right now of pop country. Uh, my mom, I, I always remember uh, my mom playing... Uh, Oh God! What's her name? Uh, and I'm the only one. Like who? Who sings that song? Uh, that's Jesus. a. Um, and I'm the only walk across the fire for you. you. <laughs> I'm the uh, only and only in your child. I gotta look it up. Jesus Christ! Why can I not? Wait, is is that Melissa Etheridge? Yes, Jesus. Okay. Oh my yeah. God! I love Melissa Etheridge. I just don't know, like. A five names in my head yeah. just started hitting each other. <laughs> I know, I know exactly how that goes, and it happens every time I'm on the podcast. Every time we're doing a podcast, I'll be like, "Yeah, remember uh, that one?" Uh, uh, and then you just trail off. But so, so you heard, you heard sort of like Melissa Etheridge, obviously, sort of sort of leaning in the country, but but in in another way, you know, like. Had had its almost yeah like I, um, Melissa Etheridge was on the radio. Cheryl Crow was on the radio. Uh, of course, Achy Breaky Heart was still still getting played. Uh, yeah, we yeah. we know better now. But uh, at a uh, God, country modern country these days is so fucking pop country is so terrible, and that's a completely different discussion. But uh, but yeah, growing up, I was a uh, I was kind of averse to country music because I kind of all thought that it sounded the same. And, you you know, that whole joke that we joke about online now, uh, I listen to everything except rap and country. I mean, that was me because I was a white teenager who was very insular and only focused on, uh, like, one kind of hard genre of music that I thought spoke to me. And what I thought spoke to me was shit like Good Charlotte and Simple Plan and just like all of these terrible pop punk and emo bands that upon reflection were like incredibly sexist and incredibly misogynist and just like only a, a tinge of a racism in lyrics and videos and everything. I just grew up. And that and that feels a little uh, mean to say because there are bands who sound like Good Charlotte and Simple Plan and you know pop punk uh, who are clearly good people and make good music. But I just I grew up and I just started stealing music off the internet at such a violent clip that everything started to change. Like, during the peak Pitchfork indie rock uh, thing, like, blog rock, I just, like, stole everything from Torrents and Mega Upload and everything, just trying to 
find as much music to put on my iPod as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, stuff like Animal Collective and, uh, 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 shit, why can't, there's so many bands. Uh, Animal Collective, I think, was an important band for me growing up because they kind of, uh, even though they're a bunch of white guys, they kind of uh, opened my eyes to, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that we were influenced by. Maybe you should go check that out. And that's how you find out. I mean, I was just... Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking about that that Panda Bear album Person Pitch where there was just like a I don't know, 50, 100 artists or something yeah. thanked in the liner notes and it was it, to me that at that moment I was I I went through a similar thing as you where it was like an expansion of just all these ideas and there were so many things that you could embrace and you've obviously you've been very, you know, careful with your own stuff not to to stick to one genre or to only not to not to come yeah. up with a sort of so so it must have felt a little bit more uh it, it must have felt very different to focus in on on country what was your you what wh- when did that when did you start to turn uh towards country and and how did how did that sort of thing happen where you began to find yourself drawn to the idea of utilizing those traditions for this record there's this joke in an episode of that 70s show that I think describes how I discovered country music uh, kind of to a T is uh, characters going through a breakup and was sitting in the car and listening to country music for the first time. And he's like, oh, I finally understand this. (laughs) It was similar. It was similar for you. I went through a terrible breakup with a terrible boy, uh, who I lived with for three years, and he was just emotionally abusive, mentally abusive, just kind of awful, awful, awful human being. Uh, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I'm. It's it's cool. And he still weird shit is is that he still buys my music and merch, and I don't know how to take that, but I'm also taking his money, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but li- living well is the best revenge yeah <laughs> uh but uh i start that's around the time where i started getting into punk and much more angrier music you know before uh michael gira re- uh revealed himself to be a uh gross uh accused rapist i was really big into swans and Swans is a band I can't really listen to anymore. But around that time, Swans was this huge, huge band, literally, uh, that just sounded like the earth being ripped in half. And it was a, it, they were a band that helped me process a lot of anger and a lot of sadness and a lot of rage that I had. Uh, and that eventually led to finding folk music and, like, uh, world music, uh, which is a term that I don't really like, uh, global music. It's just other music from other countries. Um, it's kind of like how American primitivism is a gross term, uh, and there's not really a there's not really a good replacement term we have for it yet. Uh, but uh, uh, all those little tangents aside, country music kind of came when I was around, I think it was like 22, 23, when I started really getting into John Prine. And uh, that's when my mind exploded. Like, 
oh, wait a minute, country music is actually brilliant because here's this singer who is working within the realms of country and folk, and he's a poet. He's the greatest songwriter who ever lived, and I still think that's true. And from John Prine came Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, uh, early Johnny Cash, or late Johnny Cash, actually, more than early Johnny Cash. I'm kind of fascinated by his late period. Uh, And Lucinda Williams came next, and Katie Lang came next, and just gobbling everything up, Nico Case. uh, That Case Lang Veers album is one of my... That's a great record. Oh my God, it's one of my all-time favorites of the past decade. And I just got started getting deep, deep, deep into country. And uh, I, th- I think being older and actually going through shit, uh, some traumatic shit and some heartbreaking shit in my life, prepared me emotionally for actually settling in with country music and understanding the craft behind it all. You, uh, I don't want to make, make a, ver- a lot of... to make a very long answer short. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to make any 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 major assumptions, but your husband wrote a really beautiful bio for this record, he did. and uh, and and it seems uh, like perhaps you're in a situation where you're a little bit more uh, settled, you know, in, in in your life, and and you've got a space there where you're able to create, and you've got a partner who's supportive of the of that. Was there any? Uh, sort of uh, a tension between the idea that you were uh, embracing this music that took such heartache to understand, you know, at a time when perhaps, you know, uh, global pandemics aside, things had maybe, uh, you know, settled into a good space for you. Was there any, or, or, or did they, did those things feel tied together at all? Those things felt tied together, and I'm glad you asked because that's kind of the story of. It's kind of the concept behind the album, which was trying to make a country music album about queer domesticity and settling down. And the reason why it's called I Got a Big Electric Fan to Keep Me Cool While I Sleep is that's a line from one of my all-time favorite songs, uh, probably my favorite country song, Ragged But Right, uh, which there's a cover of on the album. Uh, And that song kind of blew my head wide open because uh, there's tons of different versions of the song. It's a traditional song, which means by covering it, I cannot get sued. Um, but my fa- It's always nice. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but my favorite version of the song is the one by George Jones. Uh, and just to hear George Jones, of all people, sing this song about settling down, no longer being a crazy idiot, on the on the town with a wife and a kid and a porterhouse steak and a house and just everything's nice it kind of blew my mind like you can write a country song <laughs> you could do a country song about how things are okay yeah i, I mean, can you, know, you can it's... actually step back and look at things and look at your situation and see that things yeah. are okay <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny too because Dylan, when he embraced country on Nashville Skyline, it was his it was his ode to domesticity and 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 the sort of like having spent a lot of time you know in a pretty wild headspace you know chilling out a little bit and and being able to appreciate what 
what what had happened. So it's interesting that you were in a, in a similar zone. You cover Ragged, but right on the on the album with Patrick Haggerty of of Lavender Country and Paisley Fields. Were they? I mean, obviously in the in the queer country spectrum, you know, those are two people who have really helped kick kick down some doors as as well as people like Katie Lang who you had mentioned and and others you know there's a the kind of the whole yeehaw agenda thing seems <laughs> to be uh 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 you know afoot right now but but those are some of the forebearers when you when you reached out to them about the song did you explain the concept uh that you had for the album as well or did you just kind of leave it open I yeah I explained the concept because I love explaining concepts <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. Uh, yeah. I love explaining concepts more than I like actually uh, going through with them. Uh, yeah, they were both really receptive. Uh, and I had I had also worked with them in the past. Uh, I, uh, about three years ago, maybe two years ago time doesn't really mean anything anymore uh i'm i'm gonna say two years ago two years ago um i was approached by patrick from lavender country uh uh i forget the actual question that he asked me uh oh yeah he was asking me if i could open for lavender country uh, uh, at the Pinhook in Durham, one of my favorite venues, uh, he contacted me through Facebook, and I said, uh, can't really do that. I just played a show there that last week, and, you know, the whole uh, 30 days, don't want to clog up the whole uh, calendar sure. with your own name. So I explained that to him, and he was like, well, okay, do you want to play in the band? <laughs> and that frightened me and excited me because I look up to Patrick a lot. He is kind of a deity in queer country. Uh, so I was like, sure. Yeah. Uh, the day came that he was, uh, that the show was going to happen. I picked, uh, Patrick and his husband up from, uh, Brendan Greaves house. Uh, and, we went to breakfast and with the rest of the band that included uh uh Paisley uh Paisley James and we did one practice together and then we did the show and one practice was all we needed because everyone just kind of uh fell into the songs very easily these are all songs that as a bunch of queer country lovers we know yeah, uh yeah and the show was great i don't know if you've seen a lavender country show but it's more than just a concert it's more than just a bunch of songs it's the story of this dude's life and yeah. going through his entire history so it's sad and it's emotional but it's also it, it turned into a punk show near the end where we did this huge loud version of uh there's power in a union and he's in the middle of the giant crowd in the pin hook with the very long microphone. And we're just like slamming on stage. Uh, and I'd also uh, 
played with Paisley when they came by again uh, later that year. Uh, we played another show at the Pinhook, so I already knew them. And approaching them to do the song was, uh, it, it just felt like the right thing to do uh, thematically. And it was easy to do. I knew that I didn't know they would say yes, but I knew that if they said yes, they would be easy to work with. And they, uh, both Patrick and Paisley, uh, sent me their takes very quickly, and I didn't have to edit either of them. Uh, yeah, because I wanted it to sound that specific song to sound raw and kind of punky and grungy like it was in a tiny room and yeah i'm honored to have them on the album i'm honored that to have ever met them and it's weird that they're on the album it's weird that any of the people who are on the album that are not me are on the album because these are all all the guests on the album are people that i've listened to or have been friends with for years and i'm just huge fans of everyone on it. What is that? Which which camp does does Chuck Johnson uh, fall into? Who plays pedal steel on the on the record? God, I've loved Chuck's music for a long time now. Uh, completely reinvented how I saw that instrument. Uh, I th- I. God, I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to think of how I reached out to Chuck, and also I'm trying to put this bud back on the back, oh. back on the headphone that fell off. Uh, whatever. Um, I just got to not pay attention to that. Uh, yeah, what surprised me about everyone that I reached out to for the album is how game they were uh, for what I asked them to do. Um, but there is that, I forget who said it, there's that old quote when it comes to someone asking, how did you get so-and-so to be in the thing you're doing? And the answer is you pay them. Right. Um, and it's very great to pay other musicians. And I always feel great when I have the money to ask friends or people that I like to be on an album and they're always, and they always knock it out in the park. I never had, every time I've ever worked with someone on my music that isn't, you know, producing or just anyone, they improve it. And when, uh, and Claire did her multiple vocal takes for Wishes and Clapping, and she added that weird kind of semi-dissonant thing, Mm -hmm. uh, arrangement to the very end, I was like, that is brilliant. I didn't even think about that and chuck did something for uh blighted by the light that felt very true to both the roots of the instrument and also true to him uh yeah which yeah which is such an i love that somebody like the instrument of course is is uh, thought about in tandem with country music most often. Yeah. I mean, it's not that's not its only application, of course, and yeah. uh, certainly not through throughout history. But you know, I love the idea that that one of the things that everybody's doing on this record, you know, including yourself, is playing with the ideas of country, sort of pushing them into other areas, taking you know a little bit of a a, 
using that tradition but exploring a new a new path or a new side tributary you know which is what which is what chuck's records do um on this record did it did you spend you know more time with this one than you did other records um or or did it come together pretty quickly what what was it like because you recorded it all during the the during lockdown right yeah i recorded so much stuff during the lockdown some of it's most of it's been put out by now but i recorded two main al riggs albums uh during the lockdown one of them is big electric fan uh i want i definitely did more takes than usual and there are definitely songs that did not make it to the album which never happens for me I usually have a general idea of thematically what's going to be on the album because I kind of write things weirdly. I start with I start with song titles and then I write the lyrics. Hmm. I start with ideas and I kind of arrange them like a track list and kind of say, well, this one is going to sound like this and it's going to be like this. It's going to be about this and this has to come here and this has to come there and sometimes it changes but most of the time i kind of approach every album like it's a concept album like i pay very strict attention to flow and whether something either goes on too long or there's not enough i kind of worry mm-hmm. with some of my shorter albums if they're too short uh I tried to make this one under an hour. I tried to make this one under 50 minutes. I did a lot of editing, uh, a lot of new mixing and mastering software that I didn't own before last year. Uh, So I spent a long time just trying to tweak and make things that looked good, Uh, sounded good. Uh, Yeah. It was it was the most I'd ever worked on a record, and I'm still I still don't think it's done. But sure, I mean, do, is it is it hard for you to let go of stuff sometimes? Hmm. I mean, I look at the amount that I've made and the amount that I've put out, and you could say to yourself, "No, they they absolutely have no problem letting go if they're just sure. polluting their website." <laughs> Um, (laughs) but, um, when it comes to stuff like this, that feels very personal and conceptual, it is very hard to determine how the story is going to sound to other people. And you always want it to sound good. And you always want to make sure your intentions are, uh, are made clear. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can do. Right. Right. Um, with this one, I did feel a little nervous about letting it out uh, because I still don't think that the album is quote unquote done, but there is a rawness to the performances on this one that I think make it a more interesting out, uh, piece of my output than before. Are there artists uh, that served almost as a model for you in terms of the way you, you think about what you're doing? Because when I think about people who, who put out 
a lot of music. You know, I think of people like, I don't know, Robert Pollard, you know, Guided by Voices or something like that, where there's a lot of stuff. Did you, you know, has it always been for you that you just write a lot, that you just record a lot, and that you didn't, you don't want to necessarily sit on all this? I'm curious about the motivation for sharing as much as you do, um, just in general, or, or what about that approach appeals to you as somebody who thinks a lot about concepts i mean i feel like that must be a little bit tied in to to your approach why sit on anything and that's a and that's not a hypothetical i'd like to know like i like to ask a lot of people who have told me in the past friends of mine people who i'm still very good friends with who've told me don't release so much and don't put mm-hmm. out so much because you're gonna dilute them. You're gonna dilute the market. You're gonna dilute well, yeah. this whole thing that we've invented that is so arbitrary that it can change like that. Uh, it's all it's bullshit. This this art art is meant to be shared, and art is meant for people to afford it and to see it it's meant for everybody and people who put limits on you should only put this much out at a time and try to structure it in a way that prioritizes engagement over enjoyment fuck those people absolutely (laughs) because i i put things out and i make things because i enjoy making it and i want to see if other people enjoy what i do and I, I wish I had a deeper answer than that, but that's it. I like what I do, and it's something that I'm good at. And sometimes you just want to brag. You just want to brag on yourself. <laughs> like, here's an album that I made. Here's two. I made two albums this year. Here are two of them. Here's yeah. three. Yeah. Here's a single. Here's this weird thing that I was thinking of. Here's a cover sure. of a Laurie Anderson song. Uh, I want I want people to listen to my music. That's... That seems selfish to some people, um, but I want I want to listen to other people's music too, and I want more of it. I want people I, I want people to be hungry for other people's art. Yeah, I think that what you're talking about is is fascinating and it's interesting because it, it is you're talking about um, you're talking about something where obviously the the priorities of the market are less considered because they're not really priorities that you share it sounds like um do you do you feel like the general mindset uh in the quote unquote let's say independent music sphere whatever that really means in 2021 i guess it's probably hard to say but do you feel like the mindsets are rooted in maybe a time when uh, you simply couldn't just put out as many records as you wanted. You had to jump through a lot of hoops, and you had to you had to get somebody to press it, and you had to figure all of that stuff out. Do you feel like that that old mindset is still lingering, maybe past its its time? Of course, the old mindset is going to linger so much so long as the young mindset pays attention to it. You can apply that mm-hmm. saying to that very. Uh, clunky saying to anything but that's like right. like we were music nerds i don't want to speak for you but you do have a podcast on a for a music journalism website uh 
Is it safe to assume that you're a music nerd? It's safe to assume that, yeah. Yeah. We study things. We we not only listen to music, but we study who made it. We study the lives of the people who made it and how it was released and what problems went into how it was released. Um, And when you're younger and you're getting into something, you want that information by hook or by crook. You want to get as much of that information as possible. Uh, So you watch a lot of documentaries and you watch a lot of footage of like, you watch a lot of band documentaries of like the Descendants or uh, Fugazi and all of these punk bands from the, from the hardcore era uh, that seem to find a way around the problems that a lot of legacy artists had when it comes to releasing uh because somehow they found a way to physically release a shit ton of music and they did it whenever they wanted right um because they found a way to make money off it just barely enough to keep making the next new thing but the audiences were growing because they were releasing their shit cheaply and making their shit cheaply but no one really cared how quote-unquote cheap it was because the product was good because the album was good because the single was good because the shirt looks cool um and they just kept putting things out and i think that the fear of not being relevant is biting a lot of people in the ass because if you stop putting things out then you're not going to be relevant. Sure. And then you can either hope that people will give a shit when you release an album seven years from now. Right. Um, Right. And like I said earlier, there's no guarantee. There's no way to determine if people are going to be there because things change so much. The release patterns and platforms change so much that I think that it's foolish not to take advantage of what we already have and just create and put out as much as possible. I'm thinking about the stuff that, that, you know, that can be a little bit more reliable than, than, you know, uh, internet. Yeah. An internet moment. And I, and it, it makes me think about community and you've already mentioned the pin hook there. What is the, what is, what is your sense of, of the community there in North Carolina and, you know, specifically after a year where a lot of the, the gathering, uh, rituals, i.e. live performances have, have been, you know, basically pushed, pushed away. Um, do you, do you feel pretty hopeful about, uh, things going into the new year or this, whatever, not, not that it's a new year. It's, it's already, you know, March, but I feel hopeful that people are getting vaccinated. I don't know what's going to happen after that but I'm hopeful that more and more people are able to get vaccinated. I don't think we are going to get back to what things were before the virus for a few years from now. And even then it's the, it might look completely different. Uh, but the community is very strong. Uh, Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh, uh, communities, of arty weirdos 
for the most part, have been very intelligent and very uh, uh, empathetic to the needs of others right now, to the artistic needs of others. And there are people who are doing a lot of great work to still put something on, to put some kind of show or event on within the boundaries of safety. And there's a need for that. There's a genuine want and there's a genuine need for that in the community. Um, I've played more Zoom and streaming shows last year than I did uh, actual shows the year before. Mm. Because people want to listen to music and they want to see people perform. And especially with all where musically performance wise a lot of us are out of a job there are people whose entire income uh comes from performance that they've just that's that's a section of their income they're not going to get back uh until everything reopens uh but again tangents trying not to i'm trying to focus on what you asked me uh uh (laughs) we take care of our own and that feels yeah. that feels a little vague to say, and that may sound a little sinister, uh, depending on how, <laughs> how you how you interpret it. But uh, no, I, I everyone's I, I, everyone's been great, and everyone I has really, been looking out for each other. There's like local Facebook groups of musicians and creative types that have also semi become. Uh, free and trade groups like what do you need especially towards Mm -hmm. the beginning of quarantine what do you need do you need toilet paper do you need food uh can we send you some money uh just so that you can help with rent can we do this can we do that there are so many funds and so many grants and everything locally that opened up during the early stages of the quarantine specifically for artists that I had not seen ever. Um, It really opened my eyes to see how important, not to, you know, get a big head about it or anything, but it, it meant a lot to see how important a lot of us, to varying degrees, how important we were to the infrastructure of these various communities meant a lot yeah abso- yeah yeah absolutely i i feel like that i have such a uh, an appreciation and a fondness for the people i know out there and you know and, because it, it feels to me like such a it it, it feels like an like that sense of community actually extends far beyond the physical location you know and and that i i i feel like i pick up on that and it you know when i see past guests like John Darnielle or whatever saying stuff. It's just like I, I on Twitter it's like, yeah, I, I I feel like slightly like a like a neighbor, you know, geographically, although that's not quite the case, yeah. you know. Um and I feel like that's such an that's such a, a a great thing. And I must I have to imagine that with that sort of in your head, as you're working on a record like this, that probably also contributes a little bit to that feeling of some stability. And and I and I think it's so interesting and, and exciting that you made a record that's this good that's this like intense 
at a time when it, you know, uh, creativity just simply doesn't come for a lot of people under, under moments like those. But it sounds like it's just always there for you. Like this, this, you know, this, this thing that you're, you can take time to create and that, you know, it sounds almost like you need to, if that, if that, I don't want to speak for you. No, no, that you're, you're on the right track. Uh, I don't, I was actually talking to John Darnielle about it near the beginning of the pandemic, uh, of quarantine before I had even written or recorded a note of this album. And I was like, man, I, a lot of people are like, I was saying to him, man, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, I've got all the time in the world and like record stuff. And I'm like, is that really necessary? And is that even happening for a lot of people? Because it's not happening for me right now. And then John was like, on the contrary, I actually have this and this and this and this and this, uh, working on right now. And I'm, and I'm like, well, shit, John is making shit. <laughs> John found a way to do it. Do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he put out two albums last year. Right, um, right. Two incredible, uh, wonderful albums. He put two albums and a live album out last year. So I'm yeah. like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, and that conversation of just realizing... That conversation where I was talking to him about it, it made me realize that it's okay to create right now. And it's okay to want to create right now. And that you're not taking, if you make things for a living, you're not taking the spotlight away from anyone else. Sure. And and that's always true. That whole competition is only created by the people for whom art doesn't come to them. They're only there to sell the art. Competition is a fake thing created by non-artists, but it ruins artists. And it ruins relationships between artists. Uh, But being kind of in the back of my head, being told by both John and myself, it's okay to create and it's also okay to take your time if you don't want to create. It really yeah, freed yeah. everything up for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mentally. And that's how I got two albums. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of which well, one of which I actually starting, uh, just trying to get this mic stand. Yeah, no worries. One of which, at the beginning of this year, I decided to throw the entire thing away and re-record everything, uh, which is the best decision I've made in a long time, because I kept trying to chase this weird Jim O'Rourkean kind of lush singer-songwriter thing, and that really wasn't taking me anywhere uh, where it, it just... Sometimes things just don't click, and sometimes yeah. things just don't work. So I threw everything away, and I started listening to a lot of Talk Talk and Blue Nile and uh, Sade and all of this, you know, quote unquote, sophista pop, and yeah. which is a term. I love that stuff. So do I, and it's a term that I hate. But again, like American primitivism, it's like I don't know what else to call this. <laughs> uh, uh, so now the album's going to sound like the Blue Nile, and it's going to have, 
and it's about dead people. Uh, so you've got a so you've got a you've got a country record about domesticity and a sophistopop record about dead people. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah, um, I can't wait to I can't wait to hear that one. Do you fe- it sounds just... absolutely nothing like Big Electric Fan, and that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel so? Is that something that you you've already got finished up, or you're nearly finished? Or I had written these songs a long time ago. Uh, a few of them are actually uh, from a recording session I did with Brad Cook a few years ago. And Brad's great. And uh, I was like, hey, can I take these songs that we worked on in Greensboro and put them on the new album? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure, totally. Uh, so, and his idea, his ideas and his spirit are all over the album in terms of. Mm how I'm approaching this. Again, performance first before anything else. But the album sure. sounds like water. And I wanted Ooh. and I wanted to chase that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm excited to put it out. I've got a I I have all of the art done uh before the album's even been announced. Uh which is usually how I work. Uh I'm excited to share that one. I'm always, and I'm always trying to, you know, keep a few steps ahead of myself. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about Big Electric Fan, which is a great record. Um, We do have to, before we, before we close this episode though, uh, I believe you have uh, a lot of opinions on the um, Altman film Popeye. Okay. So here's uh, the thing about Popeye. I need to hear the thing about Popeye. That's for sure. Here's the thing about Popeye. Um, uh, Popeye 1980, as it as I colloquially refer it to, <laughs> just to make sure people know what I'm talking about. The film is a masterpiece because it has everything going for it and everything going against it at the same time. It is one of my favorite uh, kinds of films, which is a huge fucking mess. Yeah. What are some other examples of, of that kind of film? Because oh, I, I, I well, it's it's three, all it's all spring sprang to mind. It's 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 not just films. I just love a mess. Yeah. I because a mess <laughs> implies a huge burst of imagination and thought, and yeah. whether or not it pays off, sure. the effort was there. Like you want to know what else is a mess? Fucking Lulu by Lurita Metallica. That thing is now a, you're t- that thing is a yeah. huge mess, and it's not even fun to listen to. But I have grown to appreciate it for what it is and what went into it. Me too. Like, Me too. Like Trans by Neil Young is a mess, but it's my favorite Neil Young album. Sure. I mean, like you said, this those are examples of some of an artist, an established artist who knows how to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm choosing to do something that they nece- don't necessarily know how to do um or just don't gonna, do usually or they're yeah they're gonna they're gonna yeah try something so 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 as far as popeye goes um did you watch popeye when you were a kid and my, it, and my mom pretty- says i watched popeye when i was a kid and i just don't remember it but yeah i fell in love in the film with the film when i started to really get into robert altman uh, about five or six years ago and I was like, oh, wait a minute, he did Popeye. Let me put that on. And it's just, 
it's a laundry list of some of the most talented people who have ever worked and some of the most right. well-known people. You've got Robert Altman directing. You've got Jules Pfeiffer writing a script. You've It's produced by Robert Evans, and it's got Disney and Paramount money behind it. You've got Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall, uh, and you've got songs by Harry Nilsson and music and orchestrations by Van Dyke Parks. And it's everything perfect on paper. And then the yeah. second they hit record, everything goes south. There's a huge <laughs> storm. Nobody's happy. Uh, uh, Robin Williams has to have his eye taped shut because he's fucking Popeye. He's got these <laughs> huge just slabs Prosthetic, of prosthetics uh, that, look, yeah. that look like dog shit. Um, <laughs> and... And he punches a squid into space, amongst right. other wonderful things that happen in that film. But the reason why it works is because it's one of the only live-action adaptations of a cartoon that understands that this is all supposed to be a cartoon. It has cartoon mm-hmm. energy. It has cartoon logic and physics. There's a dude that gets punched through the roof and his head uh, goes through... The roof. Yeah, yeah. You've got you've got a dude. It's it's chock full of circus actors. Robert Altman right. got like this family circus to just come, just do a bunch of shtick. You've got a guy whose entire thing is running around trying to catch his hat that he's been kicking the entire time, and he can't grab his hat. I think what what you're saying is that uh, that. Y- yeah, you love you love the energy of it. You love the enthusiasm. I love of it, the enthusiasm. The that- yeah, I love the enthusiasm of a mess because what that yeah. means is that they're having fun, and you yeah. never there's a there's very rare occasions where you see a movie where any where the energy is fun and the ideas are just everywhere, and you know that you, it's that old adage where. If a movie looks like it was a lot of fun to shoot, it was probably a fucking nightmare. And if it right. looked like a nightmare to shoot, then they were probably uh, having a blast. Like, David Lynch is the best at that, uh, to bring yeah. things full circle. David Lynch yeah. is kind of perfect with that, where his movies and his shows look like they would be a nightmare to sit. Yeah. Just just to mentally and emotionally sit with all of these ideas. And then you find out he's th- like the best director to work with. People, people love, people love working with him. Mm-hmm. The pe- people, yeah, people like Naomi Watts. I, there's a, yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. When I, when I watched some of the bonus feature stuff from Mulholland Drive, and she was talking about a particularly difficult scene there on the couch and how, she felt like Lynch was there with her, like just like helping her get through this stuff, like working with her in such a collaborative way. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, That's you know. So the whole thing with, and I, I know we're running late, That's and you fine. can cut all this shit out if you want. But like, I'm some I, of the best stuff. So we're having fun. Yeah, I love yeah. It. We're riffing. We're goofing. <laughs> we're goofing. We're goof. We're goof trooping. Uh, <laughs> there's that 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 legendary. A review of Blue Velvet by Roger Ebert, mm-hmm. where he is going off on how 
Isabella Rossellini is like mentally being put through hell and she's having to do all of this degrading stuff and it just oh i just yeah. feel so bad for her and then she comes out and like responds to her him and he's like what are you talking about it's great uh um, yeah because and yeah. and to be fair to uh roger ebert there's very rarely directors and artists and specifically musicians that are fun to work with and that are right. that are good to work with. There are people who are good at their job, but like Al- like Albert, but they're <laughs> a fucking pain in the ass or they're yeah. or they're abusive or they're just right. creeps. Um and tying all this up, I just feel like it is so much easier to be sincere and kind at the risk of making quote-unquote subpar art than it is to be a dick and make a masterpiece because i want because i want to keep working with people and i want to keep hanging around with people and i want to keep talking with people and competition again kind of ruins a lot of that uh i had a someone i considered to be a friend i was talking about the weird competitive air that the local music scene, uh, local music scenes, uh, foisted and kind of fostered in a lot of people. And it got to me and it got to me about this other person because they were a queer songwriter. And I had that jealousy and that competition. Like, why are they paying attention to him when they could be paying attention to me? And then when I grew up, I was like, oh, that's bullshit created by people who actually don't make art. And I had no reason to be jealous of him. But I posted about that, and he blocked me on Twitter. So what the fuck do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Al, uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And it's funny, too, because as we close out, Lynch is somebody who talks specifically about some some of what you're saying really resonated with me when you were talking about making this this record because what he's talked about in a lot of the stuff I've read is that you can't really create when you're miserable you oh, yeah. you, you can you can of course and people do you know but it's not the feeling of creating when you're not miserable when you do realize that you can explore dark things and scary things even better when you've got some sort of you know, footing. And, you can compartmentalize. And, 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 sure, sure. And and I feel like on this record, I hear, I hear it. It feels, I mean, in so many ways, like a continuation of what you're doing. But it also feels like um, maybe this sort of a, a new, a new era too. And so I feel like uh, it, it'll be fascinating to watch where you take things. And I'm excited to hear this Sophistapop record. Yeah. And. Uh, and I appreciate you taking all the time to to sit here with me and talk about all this stuff on transmissions. Of course, and I love the podcast. I listen to it all the time, and I'm not just saying that to, you know, wrap things up or plug the podcast. I, but I, I really love the conversations that you get into that you get into with people that you wouldn't really get from anywhere else. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I'm uh, very much appreciate you being part of that. So um, I and I, I appreciate. Uh, uh, this is just the 
crippling self-image. I appreciate lucking into being on this podcast. Well, you know, you didn't luck your way on. You you tweeted your way on, and uh, we had a lot. We had a lot of great interactions that led here. So I appreciate you taking the time, Al. Thanks so much for being here. With Thank me. you so much, Jason. Please don't ask me to take you for one final ride. Restaurants have all our arguments and all our final meals inside. Just give me. Al Riggs, check out I Got a Big Electric Fan to keep me cool while I sleep over on Bandcamp. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Visuals and more by Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls. Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. You hear him as our announcer at the top of the show as well. We'll be back next Wednesday with something very special, an archival phone call with new age composer and human ray of light, the late Joanna Brooke. I spoke with her in 2016, and you can read the interview right now on Aquarium Drunkard, but next week we're going to revisit that phone call. It was a really special one for me, and although the audio isn't quite as nice as we like to have it on the show these days, I think it's a pretty special conversation that people will enjoy hearing. So stay safe, and we will speak soon. Find us over at Aquarium Drunkard, and uh, be sure to hit up the Patreon to help us keep doing this weird independent project. We appreciate your patronage and your listening very much. Explain.